So Genesis, back to what really matters. Uh, you could summarize Genesis 1. We're finished with it. I summarize it like this. If there's a big bang, there has to be a big banger, right? If there is a beginning, there has to be a beginner. So that is Genesis 1. And the echo is not necessarily the mechanisms by which creation came. The echo through all of scripture is the fact that God created. So there's lots of like people that will say little differences on how to interpret Genesis 1, but no evangelical Christian denies that God through Jesus created everything. That's the big picture. And that's what is echoed through all the way through the New Testament. Colossians chapter one, that through Jesus, everything was created. All right, so Genesis one, done. Genesis two, we're gonna do the whole thing tonight. So get ready. Jesus, I thank you for the illumination of scripture. Thank you that it is a light unto our path. Thank you that a young man will cleanse his ways by taking heed to your word, that it has power to purify. It has power to give us purpose. It has power to guide us. And so that's what we need tonight, Lord. May you use Genesis 2 in the life of Edgewater, in the life of these believers, to guide, to illuminate, to direct. And I ask this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, verse one. Thus the heavens and earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. The Sabbath rest. People can get very legalistic about Sabbath days and what you have to do and what you can't do and what day it should be on. Um, I do not believe in a forced Sabbath as a New Testament believer. I do believe that it's good. So it's like this. If you are a parent, you know that your kids, they get to like a, 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 a certain kind of phase when they're tired. Um, it's like this. If you have an old weed eater, you'll be using your weed eater. And when it's about ready to run out of gas, what does it do? It goes really high, right? When it's run off vapors, all of a sudden it goes, Wah! and you can't like shut it down. That's kids, right? When they're about ready to run out of gas, what do they do? They just go, wah! And you're like, what is wrong with you? Well, they're tired, right? And so you have to like get them to go to sleep. But when you try to get them to go to sleep, what do they do? They fight you because they're all, wah! And they're like, I don't want to go to sleep. I'm not tired. I'm high, right? So you have to almost trick them into going to sleep. Like I, th- every single one of my kids I've had to do this with. Elijah John, probably my best example. He was 18 months old. So uh, eight years ago or seven years ago, a long time ago, 
And I had taken him into town on a Saturday. We had done a bunch of stuff. And then I just noticed he was going, it's the time to go home. So I was driving my Volkswagen bus. And a Volkswagen bus, it was the original minivan for families. And they're brilliant. Like they're designed brilliantly. Because a Volkswagen van allows just enough carbon monoxide into the cab to make a child tired without killing you. It's like they measured it. So I knew that, I put him in and we're driving and he's in his car seat and I'm driving, he, he kind of falls asleep. Then we hit one of these 90 degree turns on Cloverlawn up to my house. He wakes up, he looks at me and he goes, dad, I'm not tired and falls back asleep, right? As a parent, you know, bro, you are driving yourself crazy. Go to sleep. That's what God, I believe, is doing in day number seven. You're going to drive yourself crazy. Go to sleep. Rest, rest, rest. So we looked at this mostly on Sunday. Um, I did say on Sunday that the only people that can never rest are who? Slaves. <laughs> Slaves can't rest. They can never disconnect. They're always under the thumb of a pharaoh or a taskmaster telling them what they can and cannot do. Um, That's actually a lie. The only people that cannot rest are slaves and mothers, (laughs) right? (laughs) So dads, listen to me very carefully. And I do this in premarital counseling with husbands-to-be. I say, we're supposed to reflect Jesus, Ephesians chapter 5. We're supposed to love our wives like Christ loved the church. And Jesus says to the church, come unto me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Husbands should be doing that for their wives. Honey, I know, amen. (laughs) I know you've been with the kids all day long. It's time for me to take this shift. It's time for me to help out. It's time for me to engage. Super important, right? So we reflect Jesus, when we're husbands that say to our wives, hey, take a rest. Huge, huge concept. So then we get into the creation now of Adam and Eve. Verse four. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that Yahweh, this is the first time the covenant name of God is used. Yahweh is a relational, it's not a title anymore, right? It's now his real, this is his covenant name. Covenant is relational term. In the day that Yahweh God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up for Yahweh God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then Yahweh God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath, the ruach of life. And the man became a living creature, literally a nefesh. And Yahweh God planted a garden in Eden in the east. That word east, um, maybe isn't the best translation of this. A guy named Sailhammer, who I love, says it should be long ago. That'll become important in chapter three. So you just tuck that away. 
And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, Yahweh God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Creation of Adam. Verse five should have made you puzzle because it says, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. If you remember from chapter one, on day three, God made all the vegetation. So why in day six, when Adam is created, why does it say there's no bush of the field and no small plant had yet sprung up? What's up with that? If you look back at chapter, or verse four, I should say, listen to this. See if you can pick this up. These are the generations of the heavens and earth when they were created in the day that Yahweh God made the earth and the heavens. Do you see a reversal there? The final phrase of verse four is when God made the earth and the heavens. Which way is that normally phrased? Heavens and earth, right? It's reversed right here. And here's why. It's a pointer of sorts. Chapter one is very God-focused. God does, God does, God does, God does. Heaven to earth, if you would. In chapter two, what we're gonna get is, now it's human-focused, it's earth, if you would, to heaven. It's a reversal. So God now is going to be explaining some things. So if you had just read chapter one as a slave, you would be thinking, okay, God, you keep saying everything is good, tov. In fact, at one point you say tov, tov, which means very good. We're supposed to be blessed, fruitful, and multiplying, right? Now, God, if that is all true, then why does it hurt so bad to have babies? God, if that is so true, why is marriage so hard? And why is raising a family so difficult? Why is it weird to be naked? Why is it embarrassing uh, to be sexual, right? Why are these things there? Why is there all this confusion, right? Animals don't have any kind of problem with sex, do they? No. (laughs) So uh, when my older two daughters were young, they were uh, three and four, had a birthday party. We had been given two baby bunny rabbits and they were growing. And so I thought it'd be really cool to have like a little mini petting zoo. So I made this kind of outdoor cage, put the bunny rabbits in the outdoor cage and I'm busy doing something. And all these little girls for this birthday party are gathered around this cage with the bunnies and they're giggling over there. And then like, you know how you have that radar? The radar all of a sudden picked up one of the girls who said, look, the rabbits are wrestling. I thought, wrestling, wrestling, like Hulk Hogan? Like, how do rabbits, oh my goodness. I run over there. I'm like, rabbits are done. They went to the vet the next day, right? They, they had no problem doing whatever they want to do. Dogs don't have any problem with that. Horses, cows, animals. They have no hangups sexually. And yet humans have a lot of hangups and weird things sexually. So you read chapter one and you're going to be thinking as a slave, like if it was all tove, then what's the deal? So God now is in a process of explaining, here's, here's what happened. So verse five, it's, it's like this. 
The word that's used, no small plant of the field, is literally a crop. And then God adds, there was no man to work the ground. This is a poetic, if you would, great way of saying a long time ago. So way before there was cultivated land, way before the things, like like how you see them now, before all that, way back, before cultivation, before there was a man to till the ground a long time ago. It'd be like this when I talk to my kids. Hey, when I was little, I walked to school barefoot in the snow, uphill both ways, right? It's me saying a long time ago, it was a lot different than what you're dealing with right now. You got it so easy. It's kind of like that. It's God now putting a marker here saying, hey, a long time ago, before, what you, before earth was like you thought it was, let me explain to you what happens. And so that's what is said right there. Then God, chap, chapter two, verse seven, it says God formed the man of dust from the ground. How different is that from chapter one? In chapter one, man is made male and female, And they're called immediately the Imago Dei, the image of God. A very high view of humanity, right? Real high. You are the very image bearers of God. Beautiful, incredible. Chapter two, man's called dirt, right? (laughs) How different of a view is that? Chapter one, you are the Imago Dei. Chapter two, you're dirt. So Megan Baker, a number of years ago, had this house and she had in the room of her son, Izzy, she had this definition on on the wall of his room and it said, boy equals dirt with noise coming out of it. (laughs) I said, theologically, that is so perfect. That's exactly what we are. We're dirt with some noise coming out of us. We're dirt plus divine, right? It's like this really interesting thing that we are. We're, we're, um, we're, if you would, mud mugs with a treasure in them, earthen vessels with a treasure in them. And that's what you see right here. It's dirt plus the divine. I love this because here's what we do very often with the world. We want to divide the world into sacred and secular. Like this right here is sacred stuff, holy stuff. But all this stuff over here, it's just secular. It doesn't matter. So you've got the holy side and you've got the just ordinary side. I love Genesis 1 and 2. Imago Dei and dirt. Because our tendency is to be like this. I need to just get through this, this material stuff my job, whatever it is, so that I can get to the important spiritual stuff. I 100% theologically disagree with any of those kind of divisions. I think they are wrong and they're harmful. That somehow my job as a preacher is more important than a guy who builds homes for families so they can raise kids as the next generation. I think that is completely wrong theologically. There is no such thing in the Bible. I think it's damaging to people and what they're called to do. And I'll prove it to you. Romans 8, 5 says this. It says, 
that if you want to walk after the Spirit, right? That's high calling of a Christian. If you want to walk after the Spirit, here's what you need to do. Does it then give you a list of activities? You need to pray. You need to fast. You need to read your Bible. You need to cook cookies for the head pastor. Those are walking. And if you walk after the flesh, those are activities like um, being a plumber and not pulling up your pants. Like that's after the flesh. No, it doesn't do that. What does it say? Mind the values of the spirit. There's no activities in there. It's all attitude. What's your perspective? What's your attitude on what you're doing right now? Because honestly, prayer can be the most arrogant thing you ever do. People sometimes pray and they're passively aggressively preaching a sermon to the other person, right? They're not actually talking to their heavenly father. They're trying to passively aggressively like condemn the person that they're supposed to be praying with. Man, that is fleshly. There's nothing good in that. I can have my Bible open and reading it, not because I want to know God, but because I want you to think that I want to know God. Okay, that's just minding the value of the flesh. That's just me trying to impress you with me having my Bible open or something weird like that. On the other side, I can do the dishes while giving thanks to God that I was able to feed my family. I can do the dishes saying, hey, this is the best way right now I could ever love my wife by simply doing the dishes. That's holy. The wives are saying, preach it. <laughs> Do you, do you understand that? There's no such thing as a sacred, secular divide. It's attitude. It's not what I do. It's why am I doing it? And so Paul puts it like this. It's 1 Corinthians 10, 32. He says, whether you eat, whether you drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So Paul does the same thing. He takes very ordinary activities, eating and drinking. Hey, you can do that for the glory of God. Look at the 613 commandments that God gives in the Old Testament. 99% of them deal with the ordinary. Why? Because God does not have that same divide. It's wrong and it's hurtful, I think, to the way that we're supposed to walk out our faith. It's walked out in ordinary things using inordinary attitudes of gratefulness and love and kindness. Man, that is walking after the Spirit. So I love that you see it in the very design in the beginning. Amago Day, chapter one, dirt, chapter two because both of them matter. So God makes this dirt mug, breathes into him the very ruach of God, and then sets him, verse eight, in Eden. The word Eden means delight. Here is this delightful garden. Do you have a delightful place in life? Maui, Florida Keys, Merlin. Mine's Cathedral Hills. Like, I even love the name. Like, Cathedral Hills. What a cool name. Right in my backyard. It's a delight to me. I think God still loves to put people in de delightful places. I think God actually cares about, like, where we live. The Old Testament is full of these rules. Like, um, when a family got land, like, God was very, very strict about that land staying in that family. That family is supposed to have a delight, an Eden, a home, a farm, a place where they all know, hey, this is, no matter what happens, we can come back to the family farm. So I think God does still care about these same kind of things. It's awesome. So now God's gonna begin to explain some things. First, 
the location of this garden. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. So now we get a location for the Garden of Eden. In real estate, they say there are three important factors in real estate. They are location, location, and location. God knows that, so he's like, location matters. So you take the same house in San Francisco versus Tacoma. Yeah, which one's worth more? Tacoma, because of pot now. It's like worth way more. <laughs> or you just cross the road into oceanfront property. Man, it's 10 times, 20 times more expensive of a home. Why? Because of location. So God now is giving the location of this. And there's two rivers that we don't know where they're at. And it's interesting that it's the two rivers that we don't know where they're at. God gives a whole bunch more information about them. Like I think they, Moses didn't know where they're at. Right? Two rivers we do know, Tigris and Euphrates. What happened to the two rivers we don't know where they're at? I don't know. Rivers move. I have a buddy who built a house um, on some property by the Applegate. And his pro property actually crosses the Applegate and so we want to put a cabin over there. So we went on Google Earth and started backtracking. Well, back in 1996, the river went right through where he wants to put that cabin. It was on the very edge of his property. It's literally moved 150 feet. Rivers just move. Rivers change. And the flood, what did that do to the earth? So things have changed. God doesn't seem worried about it. I'm not. And it says that the gold in this one area, I love this, was good gold. What's bad gold? I'll take all the bad gold. If you don't want the bad, give it to me, right? And then bedellium and onyx. Here's what God is saying. I packed this land full of potential. There are resources there, Adam. There are resources there, Eve, that if you tap into them, you can be creative and you can build and culture can come from this and beautiful things can come out of this. There's all this untapped resource in there. There's potential. God builds it in to this Garden of Eden, potential. Now, now we get God's guidance for the man. Verse 15. Yahweh God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Literally, the word keep there means to watch. Like just to look at it. Aren't gardens beautiful? Yeah, there's something like, hey, this is beautiful. Keep it, work it, watch it, love it, um, enjoy it. And Yahweh God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So God creates this mud mug, breathes into him his ruach, and then puts him in this place called Eden. 
and really gives him three things. Work, enjoy, and look out. First, work. Verse 15, he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it. I tell young men all the time, before Adam gets the girl, he gets a job. I think the pattern holds. You want one of my girls? Get a job. Before you're dating one of my girls, get a job. Work. This is before the curse. There's this guy, I, he, I, I like him. His name is Louis Nitzer. He's in the Guinness Book of World Records for being the highest paid lawyer. And he gave a commencement address to Harvard. And in it, he said this one thing. I wrote it down. It's one of my quotes. He said this, um, learn one word. It will make the bright man brilliant. The brilliant man, a genius. They will roll out the red carpet for you. That word, work. The highly educated people at Harvard, if you learn how to work, man, it takes you from bright to brilliant, from brilliant to genius, they roll out the red carpet for you. I don't know a more lasting quote than that. That guy, by the way, worked till he was 10 days before he died. He died at 92. He worked and worked and worked and worked. He loved it. To me, this next generation, I tell my kids this all the time. If you learn to work, you're going to rule this next generation. It's just that simple. Learn that. It's before the curse. To me, there is nothing more dangerous than a bored man. Most of the really bad stuff that happens in our world is because some man was bored. Man, I don't know what to do. Oh no. Oh no. What, like I don't let my kids say bored in my house. No, you can't say that. Are you kidding me? You can't say that. There's nothing worse. Like uh, there, there was this one guy that Mark and I walked with for a while and Mark had just the best description. He, he worked and then he lost his job and they didn't get a job for a long time. And it was like, uh, you, you were just watching something happen to him. And, and Mark put it like this. He, he said, it's like watching a decomposing corpse. I thought, what a brilliant way to put it, man. It's like, he just became less disheveled and more like just, it was just like, whoa, what is happening to you? From pretty together guy to decomposed in just a matter of months. Dangerous. I don't think there's anything worse than a bored man. So God says, make sure and work. I'm retired, Matt. Hey, that's fine. Just because you're retired doesn't mean you can't work. You can't be creative. You know, I, I said this, that one of the most dangerous years in your life is the year you retire because God has put into us this desire to contribute, to take raw materials and make something of them. And there's still plenty that retired people can do and, and all kinds of stuff. I never plan to retire. I've said that before. I plan to die in the pulpit. I'm just preparing you in advance, okay? <laughs> so when it happens, people will be like, what happened? Matt retired. That's what you can tell them. I think it's unhealthy. We're supposed to have this outlet to this creative thing that God has put into us. And a bored man is very, very dangerous. So God here, number one, man, work. Gary Bashir is one of my favorite professors. He put it like this. You want to find fulfilling work? He goes, figure out what you love to do and then find a way to make money at it. Figure out what you love to do and then start finding a way to make money at it. That will be fulfilling work for you. 
I've never forgot that quote. That is a good work. So first, hey, Adam, you got a job. Take care of this garden. Number two, I just love this, enjoy. And then God commanded the man. (laughs) You may surely eat. That word surely eat is in the infinitive. It just means on and on and on. Eat as much as you could possibly want to your absolute heart's content of every single one of my trees. God's just a giver. Enjoy this place. Eat all the fruit that you possibly can. Enjoy it. Love that. There's a rhythm here as well, I think. It's work, then enjoy. You want a hint to success? Do what you're supposed to do when you're supposed to do it, and you'll succeed. When you're supposed to work, guess what you should be doing? Working. Not checking Facebook, not checking Craigslist, not updating some kind of status. When you work, you should be working so that when you play, you can play. God wants you to do both. Too often what happens to some people is this. When they work, they kind of half work and then they get behind every day. And so Friday, they have to work extra on Saturday to make up for all the wasted time throughout the week. And so then they never really get a play. They never get refreshed. They never get to enjoy things and they just spiral out of control. Work when you're supposed to work so you can enjoy life when you're supposed to enjoy life. It's that simple to me, all right? Then we get the warning. It's interesting to me that even in the garden, there was not unrestricted freedom. Even in this delightful place, God did not give to Adam unrestricted freedom. We know there's no such thing as unrestricted freedom, right? There are things that you can't have both. I can't both have a six pack of abs and eat a gallon of ice cream a night. If I do that, I will have an ab, singular. You can't have both, all right? There's no such thing as unrestricted freedom. So Adam, from the very beginning, is told you cannot have unrestricted freedom. And this is the warning. Do not eat of this tree of good and evil, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, just one note, and we'll hit this a lot in chapter three. Did God say he would kill Adam? No. Isn't that what we believe, though? It doesn't say that anywhere in the Bible. God doesn't say, I'll kill you. God says, if you eat of this tree the repercussions will be, you'll die. Just a note, we'll cover that a lot more later. So now there's this warning. And here's what's fascinating to me. If you look at verse nine, it says, out of the ground, Yahweh God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. What kind of trees does God plant in the Garden of Eden? Trees that are pleasant to the sight and good for food. Eat of them, right? Those are the trees God plants. Good trees. Is the tree of knowledge of good and evil a good tree to eat for food? No. Okay. If God only makes good trees that are pleasant and beautiful and good to eat, then where in the world did this bad tree come from? Right? How did it get in the garden? 
Some people put it like this, that God was testing Adam, that God planted this tree there some point to test Adam. So the pushback that I've got on this, I've heard the pushback on this idea is that, hey, that's wrong of God to do. That would be like me doing this, like me getting a loaded pistol and going to Myron, my three-year-old, and Elijah, my nine-year-old, and telling them, do not play with this loaded pistol and then putting it on the table and walking away. My answer to them is always, uh, what kind of pistol was it? A 22, because Myron's three and he already has one. So that's not even a problem. <laughs> We're Southern Oregon. Kidding me? <laughs> right? It's that kind of idea. Like, yeah, it's unfair. No one could possibly withstand that kind of pressure. Is, is that what God's doing here? As he put the tree there to test Adam and Eve. Well, I'll give you the answer. Nobody knows. It's conjecture. How'd the tree get there? I don't know. No one ever tells us. The Bible does not explain how the bad tree got in this good place called the Garden of Eden. Here's my conjecture. Only mine. Me no more. Other people agree with me, but it does not mean it's right. I believe the serpent put it there. That's what I believe. He got it there. He hung out by that tree until he had the chance to take out Adam and Eve. And we'll see in chapter three, what's fascinating is there are three different opinions of this tree. God has an opinion of the tree. The serpent has an opinion of the tree. And Eve has her own opinion of the tree. The question is, who do you believe? What's interesting is I think those three same temptations are here today. There's all these things out there. There's life out there. And there's always multiple opinions about them. God has an opinion on it. I think Satan has an opinion on it. And there's usually some advertisement with a very beautiful woman and she's giving an opinion of it as well. They're still the same three things, right? God's opinion is, don't eat it. Don't eat that. God's commands, 1 John 5, 3 tells us, are not grievous. It's not God trying to take something from us. God is warning Adam right here. It's a bad tree. It's a bad tree, Adam. Stay away from it. And I love how simple it is. Like, this is not a moral dilemma. He's not putting forth a really difficult kind of thing for Adam to kind of stretch his brain around, like, hmm. Like, he's not, he didn't even say something like, hey, respect me. Adam would be like, well, what does respect mean? How do I respect God? What does that look like? Like, it's real simple. Don't eat that fruit. This is not a moral dilemma. It's not a shark attacking your daughter and niece and you trying to figure out who should you save. This is not Donner Pass, should I die or become a cannibal, right? There's none of that. It's super clear. Don't eat that tree. I think God is usually really clear in what matters. That's wrong and this is right. The important things in the Bible, super clear. God is super clear with this. Stay away. Stay away, right? Then, the final scene, Adam gets the girl of his dreams. Then Yahweh God said, it is not good. This is the first malediction, meaning bad thing. It's been benediction to this point. Good, good, good. Tov, tov, tov. Now we get, it's not good, a malediction. 
that man should be alone, I will make him a helper fit for him. God looks at this great garden, beautiful garden. He sees Adam there and he says, man, it's not good that Adam's alone. Now, why is that not good? I think because Adam kept losing his tools and asking God where they were at. <laughs> where is my rake, man? I, sh- I know I said it right there. He's got no one to blame either. Oh, I job, man. I don't know. <laughs> Here's what's super important. Adam is in a very good spot without any sin, with a really good relationship with God. And God says, you need companions. Okay? I think that's real important. Because even our songs sometimes betray that. We sing this song. I'm not anti this song, but I am anti this verse. It says, Father, you are all we need. Right? Good song. Is it true theologically? According to Genesis 2, it's not. Because Adam had the father. And the father says to Adam, you need friends too. You need a companion. You need somebody else. It's not good that you're alone. So sometimes we, we have these these songs and even these sayings, like to single ladies, I don't say this to single ladies, but there's this idea that like a single lady, hey, just have Jesus be your husband. I think that's madness. I don't see that in the Bible anywhere. Now I understand, you know, it's a derived thing that you can kind of derive it from another of texts, but there's no clear like chapter and verse for it. And I think, no, Genesis chapter two. Yes, if they have the gift, 1 Corinthians seven, there's a gift of singleness, but if they don't have that gift, the Bible says, get married. Your biological clock is ticking, man. Get married. I have no problem with that. I don't say things like that. I think it puts trips on people that are unbiblical. When you have Genesis 1 clearly saying, you know what? If you don't have the gift, it's really not good for you to be alone. Get married. You are created for community, right? So God says, I need to create somebody fit for him. That word fit for is the Hebrew Kenido. It's used one time in the Bible, right here. Why is that? Because there isn't anything like a woman. It's used one time. I'm going to make something that's like nothing else. One verse is used for the creation of Adam. Six verses are used for the creation of Eve. Fascinating. So verse 19. Now, out of the ground, Yahweh God had formed every beast of the field. How different is that from chapter one? Right, you hear God speaking, but chapter two informs us that actually God got his hands dirty. I love that. God gets his hands dirty. God is not this this kind of other deistic thing that's divorced from creation and from material worlds. He gets his hands dirty and says, I'm gonna sculpt and make. I love that, he's a potter. So he sculpts and makes the animals. And he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not find a helper fit for him. So Adam here has the animals brought to him and he names them. That is a way you probably know this of showing Adam, you have authority over these animals. You got authority. So the rule, dominion, 
of chapter one of the Imago Dei is fleshed out right here by your authority to name these animals. We still have that today, don't we? So if a scientist is like exploring around and he finds some kind of an animal, he is allowed to name the animal, okay? So that just, someone just discovered an animal and the name of it is this. It's called the Neopalpa Donald Trumpy. Have you seen it? Okay, I got a picture of it right here. See the hair? It's matching hair. So we still have this idea today that if you discover something, you get to name it. So this scientist named this moth the Donald Trumpy. There you have it. So number one, that can go away. <laughs> number one, it shows his authority. Number two, it shows him that he's alone. God sees the problem before Adam ever does. Bro, you got a problem. Now I'm gonna make sure that you see the problem. You're gonna see all these animals being fruitful and multiplying, and do what they're supposed to do. You're gonna remember your created mandate and you're gonna sit there and be like, there's no one for me. There's no one for me, all right? So, verse 21. So God, the Lord God, Yahweh God, caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs. This word rib, very, very interesting word. Um, the Jewish commentators say Adam was divided in half <laughs> and then closed up and half of him was made into a woman. And so that's where we get the term, she is my better half, right? It goes way, way back. Well, that's true or not? I don't know. It's one of those words that there's a real, real large uh, range of things that it could be. I don't know. Is it a rib or not? I don't know. So he takes this part of Adam it's, it's uh, some commentators literally say chunk of flesh <laughs> and close up its place with flesh. And the rib that Yahweh God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. I love this. God sees a problem. He makes note of it and he fixes it. That's the Imago Dei. See a problem, note it, and fix it. I know a lot of people that can note a problem. And then what do they do? Grumble and complain about it. That's the Imago Satan. It's very different. The Imago Day is I'm noting a problem and I'll bring it to people's attention. And I'm also going to try to be part of the solution. How do we make this better? How do I take the chaos of Genesis 1, 2, and how do I create order out of this? How do I walk order out of this? That's the Imago Dei. God sees a problem, solves it, makes this woman, brings her to the man, and then verse 23, the man said, this at last, every married man has found this. This at last, right? Finally, she's the one, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of a man. This is the first poem in the Bible. And it's when the man sees Eve, he becomes a poet, right? And every man since, the corniest, cheesiest poems ever come from men who are in love. This one is really good. He's like, woo, man, right? That's what he names her, 
Wow, check her out. Unbelievable. And this whole thing, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, that is a Hebrew way of saying mine. Literally it is. So Adam has named all the animals. Tiger, big deal. Lion, who cares? Elephant, whatever. Giraffe, oh man, stupid, right? He sees the woman, mine, I want her. <laughs> I just love this story. It's so true to life. Like there's all these people that just pass by and then there's the one, yes. My wife's grandfather got married to my wife's grandma, Margot, because there was three ladies in the back of a car and he looked in there and he just said, I'll take her. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, mine. So Adam here, man, he gets poetic. And here's what's really fascinating. He names her woman. And for the first time, he names himself man or ish. Isha, woman, names himself ish. Not Adam, but ish. I think this is a massive understanding that we know ourselves, men know ourselves through marriage. That's how we actually get to know ourselves. We don't even know what manhood is. We don't know what it means to be a man really until we get married and then we can name ourselves. Oh, that's what it means to be a man. Oh, that's what that's about. Oh my goodness, right? We don't know ourselves. That marriage is this phenomenal mirror that reflects back to us who we are. And it's actually very, very Trinitarian. Because the Trinity, the Trinity are known by the relationship to each other, are they not? The Father, the Son, and the Spirit, right? Their identities are known by what? Their relationships to each other. He's the Father and I'm the Son. That's a relational term that they're actually known, identified in relationship. I think the same thing is true of humanity, that we don't really know ourselves until we're in relationship, and especially the marriage relationship, that there's something in that, the stripping naked of who you are and your identity down to the core, and then will this person accept me or not? Like that's how we actually get to know who we really are. That you can think you're patient and you're kind and you're giving and you're all these things when you live by yourself. Man, that's easy. Get a woman around and some kids around and all of a sudden, you're not so patient and kind and giving anymore, are you? Right? All that stuff just goes out the door. You're cranky and you're impatient. What is taking so long? Let's go, we're late. Yeah, there's nine of us to get in that car. You're just taking care of yourself. Right? I'm talking about me right now. Like you get to know yourself. You can finally name yourself who I actually am. This is who I am, wow. And so that's when you get this brilliant ability to change and be transformed and forgive and apologize and grow into what God wants you to be. See, marriage is never for happiness. It's always for holiness. But if you allow holiness to have its perfect fruit, you'll end up with happiness. But if you aim for happiness, you'll never get it. You'll miss it because you're so self-centered that you miss the mirror of marriage that's able to change you and the two become one. I think it's a process. I don't think the two become one instantly. I think it just begins. And then you have to allow that process to work in you and allow that mirror and allow her to speak into your life and you to speak into her life that you actually become the two and you begin to match together. You get named, if you would, in marriage. Just, I could go on and on. I won't. And you see how quick this is lost. By chapter three, the poet now becomes a punk, right? Mine! No, it's her. She's the problem. 
It's amazing. And every man since then has done that. So sad. So, verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. I believe that become there doesn't mean instantaneous. It's I'm becoming one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Why were they naked and unashamed? Were they in wedding shape? I mean, if it's possible. I think it's much deeper than that. There's no games. There's no hiding. There's none of these, these things that separate two people and cause there to be confusion. And wh- why did he say that? And what did that mean? And all those things that, that happen. This is the, mer- the most honest, perfect marriage. It's the marriage that we all dream of right here. And it changes real quick. And here's why it changes and I'm done. It's chapter three. And we'll talk about this a lot more. Here's why it changes. Eve decides she can know what is good and what is bad. That's the decision. So if you notice a pattern up to this point, it's been God's prerogative to say, this is good, this is good, this is good, this is very good, this is not good, right? It's been God's prerogative to decide what is good or what is bad for humans. And then Eve in chapter three decides, I'm gonna do that from now on. I think that tree looks good. And from there on, things are broken. It's the same problem today. You ever made a bad decision in life that you really thought was a good decision? It was a really bad decision? You're deciding what is good and what is bad? Proverbs 14 puts it like this. There's a way that seems right to a man, but the end is destruction. When we start trying to decide what is good and what is bad, and we'll talk a whole bunch about this because that's our society now. Our society has taken the Judeo-Christian ethic and tossed it away, and we are now deciding on every level, this is, we're redefining everything. We'll, we'll decide what is good and what is bad, and we want God out of it. Okay, that, that path leads to destruction. It was tried right here. God's saying, hey, I'll provide everything you need for a flourishing life. I'll make you a brilliant place called Eden. I'll, I'll give you everything. I'll see immediately that you have a need. Even before you know you have a need, I'll see it. And I'll start preparing a way to give you that need, to meet that thing so that you will flourish in this place. And they said, nah, we'll decide on our own. And we know the repercussions of that. And people still do it today. That's why the Bible beckons us, pray. Pray about who you're gonna marry. Super huge, important decision. Pray because people are really good at putting up a front for a week or a month or even a year. So pray and get counsel, right? Pray about that decision. Lean not on your understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge me and I will direct your path. That's why the Bible says that over and over and over again. Why? Because we'll do what Eve does. I'll decide. And it's dangerous. We all need prayer. So if today you came here and you need prayer, Get it. I'll be up here. Pastors will be up here. Leadership, gals, we'd love to pray for you. Because I know this. I've made a lot of decisions that I look back in 2020 hindsight and I think, you know, I didn't really pray about that. I just jumped in on that. And man, that was a bad decision. And now I'm dealing with the fallout. I bombed out like the atom bomb and now I have all this fallout. 
And so get prayer tonight. If you've got decisions, if you've got things you're trying to make, trying to work through things, is this a good thing or is this a bad thing? Get prayer. Trust God. Lean not on your understanding. Don't be Eve. Go back to Genesis 1 and 2. God, you tell me if this is good. Well, how does he tell me that? I love Colossians. Because it says this, let the peace of God rule in your heart. I think that when I've made good decisions, there's been this peace that passes understanding. It's like, a, it's just, hey, that's right. <sighs> yes, the stress, the tightness in my back, the headache or the neck, it just goes away. I'm like, yeah, that's right. That's what I'm supposed to do. That's what you wait for. You pray until you have a peace. And you get other people to pray with you. So that's what we'd love to do for you tonight. So Jesus, thank you that you are the Prince of Peace. Thank you that you are able to lead and guide your sheep. That John 10 says, your sheep hear your voice and follow you. And that's ultimately what we want. I'm so thankful that we see this picture of our heavenly father seeing our needs before we even ask, before Adam can even think about them and then preparing a solution to solve it. That's what you are. And so I pray even tonight, Lord, for those in here that maybe they're having some problems or issues. I pray that they would know that they have a heavenly father that knows their needs before they even ask and is preparing solutions. If we'll seek you, if we'll knock, if we'll listen. And so even tonight, Lord, for those that are looking for answers, the good way, the old ways, the right ways, I pray that you would direct, that you would guide, that you would give peace. I pray for those that are doing well, Lord, May we leave here filled by your spirit, empowered by your word, in love with Jesus more, knowing that we are created for work and joy and community and that we would heed the warnings that you've given to us about the bad trees that the serpent is planting all around and that we'd eat of the good fruit that you have for us. So give us all wisdom, we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys.